Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Please give a very warm welcome to Germaine Greer. of the PA working, so we have to be as quiet as mice, so that everybody can hear, oh, it might have, dear, dear, technology. Now, my lecture today is called The Uses of Poetry, and it's my way of saying sorry to poetry for um, using the Hausman lecture to chop up Hausman, whom I happen to cordially despise. I didn't before I worked on the lecture, which is a strange thing. The more I knew about him, the less I liked him, which is the distinguishing character of a second-rate poet. (laughs) Now, what I'm going to do today is make amends by trying to conduct a seminar with a thousand people, which is completely crazy, but I think we can probably just about do it. Now, one of the things I have to do is put my text for you to see. I'm not going to labor this point, but poems are, first of all, first of all, literal. They are made of letters. And you ought to be aware of it as a concrete thing. I'm not going to belabor the point today because it's a bit too hard. And this poem is so interesting that I don't know if I've got anywhere near the bottom of it in the time at my disposal. I'm now about to test the technology. Just hang on. I'm not confident after what happened just then. I want you to see those words because I'm going to talk about them for longer than you would think possible. (laughs) Now, the point about poetry is that poetry is, I've called it the uses of poetry, but poetry is an activity in itself, which is true of all aesthetic activity. There are people who think that poetry is the writing of poetry. A great many of them send me their work. I believe in America there are more people registered for tax purposes as poets than there could ever be in the print run of any book of poetry because they will insist on writing it without reading it. And this happens a great deal in my life because I get these sheaves of what I call aching thigh poetry or (laughs) exploding ovary verse which just trail down the page one damn blurt after another And I have this form letter that I write back saying, it is a good idea before writing poetry to actually read some. Um, I've never had any evidence that any of these people took this advice. But today I'm going to talk about what happens when you read a poem and what the activity is 
when you engage with a poem, because the activity of poetry is between you and the poem. Now, in every case, this will be different, because you'll all be bringing different associations. I will have to deal with the associations that we can predict in an educated audience. Now, I've summed up the way I think it works in a rather unsatisfactory way as incantation, first of all. The poem is an incantation, a charm, a magical utterance. The next function is revelation. You find out something, you realize something, you have a shock of recognition. And then stimulation, so that it stimulates your brain to make further forays. So Philip Sidney describes this as having an erected wit. I think you can understand what he means, even if you think it's rather sexist language to be using. It's to make, it's to excite desire, the élan vital. Now the way the poem does this is extremely complex, which is why I chose a little tiny poem for you. Such a little short poem. Now you were listening to some poetry read before in which uh, the poem was actually being intoned. Uh, the English have been intoning their poetry for a very long time, and it always startles me when a 21st century poet starts off, Oh, Rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm. And then if you listen to the new British Library recording um, of poets reading their own verse, you will see the Tennyson read verse in exactly the same way. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward into the valley of death. And it's very strange to discover some sort of pimply youth of our own era doing that instead of rap. But there you go, rap, in my, to my way of thinking, is the use of language as an offensive weapon. <laughs> and it can be fabulous, it can be wonderful. I'm being a white girl, I go for Eminem, but I realize that Tupac Shaker is the thing, but I'm not there yet, I'm still trying. Okay, so let's take this poem. O Rose, thou art sick. O Rose, thou art sick. Long, long, short short, long. I'm addressing a flower straight out of nowhere. I'm suddenly honed in on this rose and I've said, oh rose, thou art sick. Which is a bit cheeky if it's rose at the crown and anchor. Who's just pulling me a pint. But we know that it isn't. We know that it's actually a rose. Now, to all of you, a rose will be something slightly different. And it's allowed to be that something slightly different because it's a numinous idea. Why is it a numinous idea? Because it stands on a stack of associations. Some of those will be frankly irrelevant, but very few of them really, because all those meanings knock into each other. Some of you may know the Waller poem, Go Lovely Rose, tell her that wastes her time and me that now she knows when I resemble her to thee how sweet and fair she seems to be. That's a much more complex utterance than it sounds, but it'll give you an idea that there is already an existing convention 
of being able to address a flower in this way. When my students say, what is an ode? I say, it's usually a poem that begins with ode. That's kind of easy. <laughs> so is this an ode? Well, it is a sort of odelet. And the thing to remember is that an ode is a lyrical measure. This doesn't have a tune, and I'm grateful, because tunes can really bugger up a poem, because they're nearly always wrong. As long as they set Hausman, I'm not worried. Rose is also the name of a woman, but what we get here is an interesting beginning with two long sounds, two O's, O Rose, thou. So the Z slides in or slithers into the the. O Rose, all voiced at this point, thou art sick. Now I said that that was a long, that it was long, long, short, short, long. But in fact, it's long, long, short, short, short pause. You come to an end in that glottal stop. Now you know who this is by, this is William Blake. And you know that he was a Londoner, that he was not particularly well educated. He taught himself Greek at a stage in his life, but I'm not sure how far he got on with it. And it's interesting to me to think, to wonder whether he would have said that with the cockney sound of sick, where the K is actually slightly delayed. I went for a walk. I don't want to go to work. It doesn't matter. A cockney can read this poem and make of it a different oral structure. An Australian reads the poem and makes of it an Australoid structure, makes it into a marsupial poem. O oh, rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies through the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love doth thy life destroy. We start off with this extraordinary glottal stop in the very first line, but if you look at it, you realize it's almost like a hiss. O oh, rose, thou art sick as if you've snuck up on the rose and whispered this barbed line into the rose's ear. Supposing the rose has an ear, but there's no point in talking to a rose if it hasn't got an ear, so there's going to be something humanish about this rose. Ambiguity is an essential element of poetry. So when we look at that word rose, we know it refers to a flower. We know that it also refers to a colour. O oh, rose, thou art sick. And we also know that it's the color of freshness and youth to be rosy-cheeked, but we also know that it's the color of infection and inflammation and gingivitis. We don't know if that meaning is lurking underneath there because we haven't got there yet. Now, if I say that poetry is incantation, that means in, in part an oracular utterance that is yet to be understood. You know how oracles are worked out in the course of plays and stories. The abruptness of address here tells us something else, that we're, this is a kind of ballad. We've jumped in in medias res, we haven't given ourselves any kind of introduction to the subject, we've just suddenly turned on this rose and told it that it's unwell. And we've also used thou art. If I say, oh rose, you are sick, you begin to see how the thou art adds to the dart in that line, how it makes it more, drives it along like a javelin. What is this then about sick roses? 
Blake might have known Herrick's poem that begins, the rose was sick and smiling died. Now roses are holes, velvet holes, multi-layered foliage, but inside there's a hole. The rose is sick, the rose is diseased, with what? With desire, with what we don't know, and Herrick has no intention of explaining because not explaining is the point. In poetry, things don't stand for other things. There isn't a way of translating it and then it's done and you don't have to worry about it anymore. In poetry, the words are always first and foremost the words, then they're the things they denote, and then they're the relationships built up between all the classes of things that they denote. I have to stop now, you're driving me mad. Really, how many photographs can anybody need <laughs> of me? <laughs> now, what is this meter, this long, long, shit, shit, long? What is going on there? Well, what is going on is that underneath, in the poem, there's a unit of structure, which we call an anapest. It's short, short, long. Unfortunately, the word anapest itself is a dactyl, which can get you mixed up. So don't worry about it being called an anapest. What I want you to be aware of is that this structure, this da-da-da, goes all the way through the poem, so that every time you alter that, you create a tension between an underlying pattern and something happening on top of it. You've got to construct forces against which to push and pull within a poem. We get to our glottal stop, O Rose, thou art sick. We have a gear change the invisible worm, which will give us our two anapests, short, short, long, short, short, long, the invisible worm. And again, we've got this slither of sounds and this voiced S or Z sound. If we saw this in musical notation, it could be something like two semiquavers and a quaver. And there's something to be said for dividing poems up into bar lines, especially if they are lyrics, as this is. What this is, is a little lyrical ballad. One of the interesting things about that is that it was written, Songs of Experience, was engraved by Blake in 1794, four years before uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge produced lyrical ballads. So lyrical ballads were out there. They had in fact been coming in all through the 18th century because the ballad revival was in a large measure the invention of the ballad. And the ballad supplied something that was missing from the official poetry, which was in regular forms, elliptical structures and so on. The ballad returned this, if you like, to what they thought of as the, the main vein of poetic inspiration. Whether they were right or wrong about this at this point is immaterial. The invisible worm, which invisible worm? The invisible worm, there are so many indivisible, invisible worms. Maggots, cankers, tapeworms, gut worms, lung worms. Anybody who's got a dog knows just how many invisible worms there are. The worm that eats them never dies. The biblical worm that will eat us when we're dead. But there's also something else about that word worm. There's the Anglo-Saxon worm, the worm, which is a dragon. Is this a maggot or a dragon? Is it coming now? 
Or is it a maggoty dragon? At this point, you just don't know, because the thing about the worm is it is invisible. Will you ever understand what it is? Except that it's invisible. You think maybe, yes, uh, it's, the sort, it's a canker worm. It's a worm that gets into the bud. It's a caterpillar, you know, when you've got your finest rows and go out and there's a hole chomped in the side of the bud and that's it, finish. No flower from that thing. At this point, you don't know. You've gone through the first two lines, but you've also got this extraordinarily abrupt contrast between sick and worm. The invisible worm. We've got this undulating structure. And then we go into that flies in the night, flies, I should have said, in the night, the two eyes coming in the same long position in the howling storm. So the worm is become a sort of supersonic worm or a cosmic worm. We've suddenly shot away from the rose, which is a dot, Mars way. Now, you can do this in poetry. And you don't have to say how you got there especially in a ballad. Ballads specialise in really abrupt transitions and you go with them without any trouble at all. You go zooming back up there, this huge pullback with this invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm. Now we've got no room for manoeuvre here. We can't say, well, it could, he could have meant and the howling storm. No, you can't because he engraved the poem himself. This is absolute echt. Blake. So we've got no ambiguity of that kind to deal with. So we have to accept that there's a worm that flies in the night in the howling storm. We've got a comma there which he put there, so I'm not entitled to do that en jambement. Now you would have noticed when I read a poem that I'm very careful to observe the line endings. There's no point in reading poetry if you make it sound like prose. The first thing you must understand is that it isn't which doesn't mean that you have to go hobbling, hobbling. Uh, you just feel the weight of the end word, the rhyme word, because it's going to carry a weight if the poet wants it to. Worm is a relatively rare sound in English, as you would find out if you decided you were going to write a poem with every single line rhyming with worm. You'd come to the end pretty soon. It's an odd and disturbing sound. The invisible worm. A rose is, after all, actually a sex organ or a reproductive organ. Interestingly, in truth, a rose is bisexual. It has stigmas and it has stamens. It isn't a female symbol. And in fact, in our poetry, you will occasionally find male roses. When you do, you should hang on to them. They're a bit special. The dragon is now moving in this darkness which covers half the world. And we've got there in three little hemistitches. We've got ourselves into this extraordinary realm of darkness. The rose has dwindled away. Okay. The soft continuant in that word storm. Now storm and worm both end in continuance. Now I don't play this game very often unless I think that it really tells me something. The, the storm doesn't rhyme with worm. So it doesn't give us a closure at the end. It, we have to go on looking for a closure. So we move into the second quatrain. 
Now you may say, well, why is, why is it in two quatrains? And I have to say, well, you have to ask Blake. Because this is one case where an editor did not do it. Blake did it. So what does he want you to do at that hiatus? Because the word is a continuant. It's going to swing you over that break. But you need to know that that break is there. Has found out thy bed. We've got the howling storm. We've got found to make the link across the great leap. So the creature, this worm, has found out thy bed. Flower bed? Doesn't sound right, does it? Found out thy flower bed? No, found out the place where you sleep. Whether you're a rose or a person or what? So you do wonder if Rose mightn't be the barmaid with the crown and anchor. Any geographic context has been overlapped in this great swirling movement down from God knows where, half the world of darkness, into the place where the rose is. But you know something about it. You know that it's probably within the rose, especially when you get to the next bit. Found out thy bed of crimson joy. But what bed is that? Beds, do beds have joy? Would you say your bed was happy? Have you got a good-tempered bed? We've gone into another place, a personal place, and this word crimson. Now we knew that the rose was rose. It has now become crimson. Why? Or is it just become more precise, the idea? Or is it as if the visit of this dark object, this dark force, has brought the blood to the surface, as it were, has bruised it or inflamed it. Remember that the rose from the very beginning is sick. And that word is ricocheting still in the back of your mind in a poem this long. The sickness is still darting through the, meaning, the, the shape, the meaning of the poem. You cannot see one line without seeing another. So the sickness is always there. Has found out thy bed. So the rose is a patient. And the rose is wounded, but it's crimson joy, pleasure, guilty pleasure. Crimson's also the color of shame. Do I have to decide? No, you don't have to decide. Because all of those meanings are in play in that poem. And the person who's releasing them and making them play is the person who shares the language with the poet who understands it and all of its connotations. This poem is yours to activate. It's not activated till you do it. The more energy you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. It's a kinetic structure, a poem. If you want its energy to become actual, you have to invest your synapses, your electrical impulses in the poem. Somehow the bed has become any vulnerable part, any woundable thing. Crimson, in this case, is a transferred epithet then. 
the bed of crimson joy, or the bed wherein crimson joy lies. And how can joy be crimson? We know it's a transferred epithet from the rose or from crimsonness, because joy is colourless, I think. But joyful things are sometimes rather pink. And sometimes they're quite bruised as well. And his dark secret love. Now we've had, has found out thy bed, short, long, long, short, long, has found out thy bed of crimson joy, short, long, short, long. Now what that means is, if we're staying within a musical notation for this song, which is after all a song of experience, then we must say that a little bit more slowly. We have to say, has found out thy bed of crimson joy. It's beginning to press down, draw out. Some, and we realize we are in the classic situation of the incubus, the nightmare that rides the, the helpless patient. The worm turns out to be male, which doesn't surprise us in the least. His dark secret love. A dark secret is a cliché. A dark secret love is anything but. Add on another word and you suddenly... And how does it work? His dark secret love. Is that the rose's love of the dark stranger? Or is that the dark stranger's love for the rose? It works both ways. What kind of love is dark and secret and destroys? This dark secret love doth thy life destroy. And the way that the anapests have been blurred in the last line puts this great stress on that twisting word, destroy. Now that's a simple rhyme. We call them masculine. It rhymes with joy. They're feminine when they've got a diddly bit hanging on, which seems the wrong way around, doesn't it? But <laughs> that, that's life, as they say. Nothing makes sense. Just as the anapest was a dactyl, the short rhyme is male. But it's also strong in English. So his dark secret love doth thy life destroy. We come to closure. We get the joy and destroy. But suddenly they're linked by this very startling, twisting vowel sound because destroy is a diphthong. It's actually a curving vowel, but we couldn't say that it was two syllables, let alone think about what it would be if it was in Cockney English of 1794. It could even be jai, hath found out thy bed of crimson jai. The one thing is obvious is that it has this twisting motion, that open-ended rhyme. So it's masculine but open-ended because we don't end with a closed lip. Has found out, you, can't, you don't say crimson joim, you say crimson joy. You end with your mouth open. This is such a subtle and complex poem about desire and guilt. Now, my friend John Hollander points out that poems are built of mythic or fabulous or fictional elements. Uh, he says that um, what we get is the 
image. And the image carries its own baggage. Well, if I look at this poem, can I find an image in it? I mean, if you were going to say, you know, children have to tell you what they see in the poem, what do you see in this poem? I mean, you could, if you like, draw a bed and a rose in it and a worm, but it wouldn't be what's in the poem. The poem isn't actually constructed of special effects in that way. It's not ut pictura poesis. It's not painting a picture. It's painting a picture, if you like, if it's presenting you with a picture, it's a picture you could never see. It takes you beyond the realm of the visible. However, a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. And we'll have reason to come back to this idea. The, world then, the worm then is a kind of demon lover, a dark stranger, a flying Dutchman, an incubus. You might remember Shakespeare's little poem. It's actually Dumaine's poem in Love's Labour's Lost. On a day, alack the day, Love whose month is ever May, spider blossom passing fair, playing in the wanton air. Through the velvet leaves the wind, all unseen can passage find. Invisible worm country, again, the unseen invader. Now what is the unseen invader? It could be this, the unformed sexual desire of the rose itself. It could be the wet dream of the barmaid at the Rose and Crown, or the Crown and Anchor. That the lover sick to death will wish himself the heaven's breath. So you say, well, did Blake know Shakespeare? Yes, no question. Would that have been part of his intellectual baggage? Maybe. Would he have known that he remembered it? Maybe. But is there an actual body of association that goes right down the centuries between the rose, the female sex, defloration and death? And the answer is yes, again and again and again. Suddenly, all of, all of these associations, of which that's one, I'll give you some more, end up parceled up in this incredibly explosive little bundle, this tincture, this essence of all the rosary poems you could possibly have, and just takes it on the chin, accepts the duty of representing roseness. You might have noticed as well that that last line repeats the slither in the first line, does thy life, O rose, thou art sick. So we go back to the slither. Ars est calare artem. This is a profoundly artistic construction. Very subtle, very complicated. Wonderful to think about. A marvelous incantation to have in your head when you are spraying the aphids on the roses and telling your roses that they are sick. The blossom of the rose tree, however, falls because it is fertilized, not because a worm got at it. So this can't be a literal botanist's rose in that sense. This rose has somehow become human, but it had to be human from the very beginning, or otherwise we couldn't have spoken to it. 
we have to predicate that it can, in some way, communicate. Now, the, I'll give you another example of a rose faced with a dire prediction. So Richard Fanshawe, in the middle of the 17th century, walks up to a rose and says, blown in the morning, thou shalt fade ere noon. What boots a life which in such haste forsakes thee? Thou art wondrous frolic, being to die so soon, and passing proud a little colour makes thee. If thee thy brittle beauty so deceives, know then the thing that swells thee is thy bane. For the same beauty doth in bloody leaves the sentence of thy early death proclaim. That's making a meal of it. That's actually shoving it down the poor Rose's neck. <laughs> and you know that what lies behind that poem is a particular kind of misogyny that thinks of sex as a destructive activity and of fertilization as death. And if you're really sophisticated, you also know that in Elizabethan English, die is often uh, a synonym. I mean, um, what is the word I mean? Die often means orgasm, means to climax, the little death of orgasm. It's a way of referring to orgasm without upsetting people, but it also contains its own Manichaean thrust. What is Blake up to? Blake is the apostle of sexual energy, destructive or not. Why has he bound up this explosive pellet of the brain to hurl at us? What is going on? A rose, of course, is a real thing. And one of the jobs of poetry, according to Pound, was to convey the thingness of things. Now, Dr. Johnson would have interpreted that as meaning that the poetic rose had to stand for all roses, for roseness, if you like, and making it a particular rose was not the job of a poet, but the job of a botanist or a florist or something. Blake's rose is, first of all, a rose, I suppose. Suppose to suppose, suppose that a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. Now, we're always being told that this line is unintelligible. It's actually blindingly clear that a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, that a rose is every rose it ever was. And even if I was a botanist, I'd know that every rose carries the genes of roseness and the possibility of eternally replicating itself as a rose until somebody decides to genetically modify it and turn it into a pumpkin which is why we're so scared about genetic modification, by the way. But the rose is, first of all, a thing. Stein kept explaining the line when it didn't really need explaining at all, and as usual, when she was explaining it, she managed to change it. When I said, a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, she said, and then later made it, uh, made it that into a ring, I made poetry, and what did I do? I caressed completely caressed and addressed a noun. A noun. Hang on. I didn't think of the grammar. I haven't actually talked about the, the circulatory system of this poem, of the way it uses its very simple grammar, always driving on. In foreign America, 
Gertrude had another go at explaining that line. Now listen, I'm no fool, she said. I know that in daily life we don't go around saying, I wish I could do her voice. I know that in daily life we don't go around saying, is-a, 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 is-a. Yes, I'm no fool, but I think in that line, the rose is red for the first time in English poetry for a hundred years. What is the root of rose, my dears? The root of rose is the Greek rhodon, meaning red. So a rose is also redness. But you're not surprised by that either, because you somehow knew that poem was read from the very beginning. And Gertrude is rather modest, because she only gives herself a hundred years to restore redness to the rose, so she leaves Blake untouched. And she's a good enough writer to know that Blake is best, at his best, left untouched. I can just imagine how hollowly Gertrude Stein would laugh if she knew that there is an internet site in which lesbian activists are trying to identify the lover who is being referred to in a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. Which is like making the rose of Blake's poem into the barmaid at the crown and anchor. It's exactly the same kind of mistake. The one thing you don't do when you're working with a poem is limit it. You expand it. You let it open out and fill up. You want to see those bloody leaves of Fanshawe's ter terrible literalness are in that poem. They have just been condensed down like roses. What is it that Pound says? Red or laid with amber, braving time. It's been reduced to a nugget, a tiny explosive mouthful. In Blake's lyric, then, the rose may be a metaphor, all all nouns and metaphors in a sense. Everything is named after something else. But it is also a rose. Cling on to that thought. Whatever else it is, it's a rose. If you move away from its roseness so it can no longer be a rose, you have fallen off the edge of the poem. And you're looking at it from, you're looking at it a squint. You might also know Gertrude Stein's story as fine as Melanctha. Civilization begins with a rose, it says in that. A rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. It continues with blooming and it fastens clearly upon excellent examples. Civilization begins with a rose. Could Blake's poem be about civilization? This seems a bit big. But can we, can we get there? Can we make it turn into such an extraordinarily bouncy stepping stone? The rose is, of course, the most literary of flowers. From the Anacreonta, for example, I'll read you a quick bit of the Anacreonta as translated by Thomas More, if only to show you how different an achievement is Blake's little lyric. It's Ode 55 to the Ruse of the Anacreonta, which, as you all know, are not written by an Anacreon, by Anacreon but to Anacreon. And it's, about, it's to the rose. While we invoke the wreathed spring, resplendent rose, to thee we'll sing. Resplendent rose, the flower of flowers, whose breath perfumes Olympus bowers, whose virgin blush of chastened dye enchants so much our mortal eye. The rose is warm Dione's bliss. It flushes like Dione's kiss. 
Oft has the poet's magic tongue, the roses fair luxuriance sung, and long the muses' heavenly maids have reared it in their tuneful shades, when at the early glance of morn it sleeps upon the glittering thorn. Tis sweet to dare the tangled fence, to cull the timid floweret hence, and wipe with tender hand away the tear that on its blushes lay. Blushes. Again, it comes creeping in, the notion of virginity, the notion of having been violated, the notion of shame. The rose seems incapable of being separated from this whole iceberg of ideas. Tis sweet to hold the infant stems, yet dropping with Aurora's gems, and fresh inhale the spicy sighs that from the weeping buds arise. <clears throat> I think you've had enough of that, haven't you, really? The Greek rose, even in Anacreon, is female and sexual. Dante's rose, on the other hand, is mystical. Did Blake know Dante? Yes. He illustrated Dante. Like most people, he was more interested in the Inferno than the Paradiso, but he must have known that heaven is in the shape of a rose. Now, you can ask yourself why that might be, but then you begin to realize that there's an absolute highway culminating in this small gem of a poem, this hard, glittering little condensation. Why is, why is heaven the shape of a rose? Then you have to go back through the mystical roses and the rose of Sharon and so on and so forth. But then you suddenly see, my God, I know where I've met the worm before. I met the worm in Blake's other big hero. I met the worm in Paradise Lost. That's the dragon that flies through the night in the howling storm. Is this poem about possibly heaven being invaded and laid waste by Satan? Now remember how Blake felt about satanic energy. Remember that even Milton couldn't deny or obscure the fact that all the energy in his poem comes from Satan, not from God. Is this poem, then, a blasphemy? Maybe. Can't decide, mustn't decide, because the whole idea, the name of the game, is ambiguity. All of those meanings will make the verse alive. They make it quiver on the page. They fill it with this drumming energy that has come from somewhere, maybe from Satan. But then, remember, that the love went backwards and forwards. What if what's being said is that heaven loves Satan and heaven will invite Satan to lay it waste? Just leave them in your head like questions. Above all, don't try to answer them. Because what happens when you make this incantation is that all of these associations are set in motion. And each time you do it, it'll work in a slightly different way. Even doing it now, I've done it slightly differently from the way I did it when I originally planned this lecture. It seems a very tall order for a little weeny teeny Dimeter lyric to produce this incredible power punch. And it comes from an act of intellectual daring. It comes from looking straight down the middle of the cliche rose and moving straight through the cliché and out the other side. Why does a cliché become a cliché? Why does it lose its force? 
So when you look, look back at all those slightly odd syntactic couplings, you realize that what's happening here is a commonplace idea is being made new, and that's important. And the more you know about the commonplace idea of the sick rose, as it appears again and again in literature, the more amazement and excitement you get from this totally unassuming, colloquial, ordinary, in terms of its vocabulary, little poem, that it has actually confronted the whole literature of rosehood and done this with it. And you're entitled if, I mean, you may have your own rose stories. You may have your own rose associations. It's a good idea to know which ones are completely irrelevant. That's quite a good idea. Um, if you read this poem in a certain way because you had an Aunt Rose who abused you as a child, it probably ought not to figure in your cogitations. Some of you may know a very beautiful little poem um, that is, we have really no idea where it came from, that does a very similar job to this in one way, if I can find it. Now, I better have a look at my watch here, or I'll be here forever. Um, because it is one of the poems on the underground. It's just that the people who edited it for the underground thought they were entitled to rewrite it. This is the version that appears in uh, old Quilla Cooch's Oxford Book of English Verse. And it's fascinating because it does, even though it's written, we think, around about 1400, and some people think it might be related to a poem by Chrétien de Troyes, it is clearly related to the Provençal lyric, but we don't know which one, or even if the one it's related to has survived, we know nothing really about it. The maidens came when I was in my mother's bower. I had all that I would. The bailey beareth the bell away. The lily, the rose, the rose I lay. The silver is white, red is the gold. The robes they lay in fold. The bailey beareth the lull away, the lily, the rose, the rose I lay. Through the glass window shines the sun. How should I love, and I so young? The bailey beareth the lull away, the lily, the rose, the rose I lay. What this poem shows you, amongst other things, is that repetition is not mere repetition that every time something is repeated, it is different. It is different because it's not being said for the first time. And the first time it's been said is reflecting on the subsequent times that it is said. If you want to play this game really to the hilt, then you've only got to think of something like Monteverdi's Il Ritorno di Ulisse, which enacts Penelope's uh, desperate longing and waiting by repeating exactly the same phrase again and again and again. And it's very important that the singer doesn't mess about with it and try and make it loud one time and soft another time. It must come back like a tolling, which is, of course, what happens with the bailey beareth the bell away, which gives you, you know what a bailiff is? Well, a bailey and a bailiff are roughly the same. And whatever he's doing with the bell, I don't know quite. The language is difficult to understand. It's much vaguer because we've lost linguistic keys to this, but it is fascinating that none of the ideas is related to the following idea. There's no explanation here. 
The explanation has to be built up by you. You're going to supply the connective tissue. I was in my mother's bower. What is my mother's bower? Well, it depends a bit what you understand by bower. I'm not going to go into it right now. If you were a grower of asparagus, it would mean one thing to you. I had all that I would. Is she saying when I was in my mother's womb, I was happy and safe? Maybe that's exactly what she's saying. Or maybe she's saying that when I lived in my mother's house, I was happy and safe. I had all that I would. Food, drink, sleep, safety. My wishes were satisfied. The bailey beareth the bell away. Does this mean that some time has run out? We're coming to a term, something is to be executed? The lily, the rose, the rose I lay. What's the relationship between the lily and the first rose and the second rose? I don't know. But the rose I lay suddenly gives you this vivid image of a body lying as a rose to be despoiled. Because there's a speaker here who's saying that she, we presume, or well, doesn't have to be, it could be a child, a boy, the lily, the rose, the rose I lay. End. The silver is white. Clatter, clatter, clatter. The silver is white, red is the gold. What is this? The considerations about her marriage? It's usually called bridal song or bridal morning or something like that. Is this everybody else running around? The robes they lay in fold. Remember that dresses were kept in, in Cassoni. Um, and this little naked figure, because it doesn't seem, and their flower is naked, this little vulnerable figure seems to be naked too, but I don't know. The lily, the rose, the rose I lay. Getting more worried about the rose. Through the glass window shines the sun. Complete dissociation. An almost autistic noticing of something with nothing to do with anything. It means too that they're wealthy and that it's, it's springtime or whatever. It's the time when you do get married. Through the glass window shines the sun. How should I marry and I so young? I mean, it comes like a, an axe blow, that line. Horrifying. How young, you want to say, down the centuries? How young were you? Could have been six or seven. People were married at that age and deflowered at that age once upon a time, especially if they were noble. And this is a sort of dramatic monologue, except given its repetitions, it too is a song. The lily, the rose, the rose I lay. I showed you that because I wanted you to see how Blake's method relates to the old ballad method, which we may call a genuine ballad method. So it's not automatic writing. It is writing that is quite conscious of itself as in a literary tradition. You can know a lot about it or you can know a little about it. The more you know about it, the more fun you will have with a poem like, O Rose, Thou Art Sick. Now, oh, I haven't got any time left at all. I'm, I'm just going to put one, can I put one more poem down? Yeah. It's the hardest one, alas. Did they leave those texts up all the time? They didn't. How wicked. I had no idea. So if you want to see my ass or whatever they were showing up there. <laughs> <coughs> 
It was meant to be up there all the time. I'm sorry if it wasn't. I did my best. I tried. Okay. Now, here is another rose poem. And it's quite difficult. If you want to see how difficult it is, you should see the mess that Helen Vendler makes of it. Because she doesn't really get it from the very beginning. One of the reasons why she doesn't get it is that she tends to think that the sonnets are the arguments they're pretending to be. They're actually fake arguments, and they work by contraries. They work by making you nervous. Now, what I've shown you up there, and I hope it stays there, is uh, Thorpe's, the way Thorpe set the poem. Because the poem has a physical life, and that physical life is important, and one of these days I want to persuade Bill Gates of the truth of this idea. You will see signs of hasty composition. You will see commas inserted with no space. You'll see a space inserted before a full stop. Now, that means you also have the right to consider that there could be some corruptions in the text. It may not be what Shakespeare wrote. Now, I refuse to deal with people who say, maybe it's not Shakespeare who wrote it. Let's just assume for the moment it was the, per the person who wrote these is the person we know as Shakespeare, and leave it at that, all right? And we're not going to, uh, in, I think, uh, interpreting the sonnets as biographical data is like thinking that Blake's Rose is the barmaid at the Crown and Anchor. It's another one of those vulgar mistakes. The important thing is to try to understand the poem. And if you read the poem sensitively, you'll see that something's gone bung in this poem. All is not as it seems, always a key word with Shakespeare. Oh, how much more doth beauty beauteous seem by that sweet ornament which truth doth give. How much more does beauty beauteous seem in the most powerful position in the line? Seeming and being are opposites with Shakespeare. Can beauty seem more beauteous? Already the idea of fakery has crept into the poem by that sweet ornament which truth doth give. Truth as applied externally? Surely truth is integrity, isn't it? It belongs inside. What a strange idea that truth would be an ornament and not an integral part of whatever it is I'm talking about. The rose looks fair, but fairer it we deem for that sweet odour which doth in it live. The rose looks fair, looks picking up the seams, but fairer it we deem for that sweet odour. We think it looks better because it smells nice. Well, that's a peculiar way of approaching the subject. Does a perfume make a flower look nicer? Don't think so. I'm actually being invited to be uneasy about this poem. It's working my uneasiness. The canker blooms have full as deep a dye as the perfume tincture of the roses. Now, this is a fun bit because John Kerrigan, who's a very intelligent commentator on the sonnets, assumes that the canker blooms are the blooms of the dog rose, which is their fifth meaning in the OED. All the other meanings are diseases. Canker in the mouth, canker in the horse's hoof, canker in trees, canker in flowers, and the canker worm itself. We've suddenly found ourselves back in the worm farm. John just decides, 
No, it's got to be the dog rose because the dog rose has no scent, which he thinks the poem is actually about scent. But by now you've already realised that the poem's not about scent at all. There's something very, very sophisticated going on here. And this is a poem written for a sophisticated auditory. This is the one time that Shakespeare tried to be a poet of the upper classes, the sonnets and the two great uh, stanzaic poems. The canker blooms have full as deep a dye as the perfumed tincture of the roses. Oh dear, the John says, right, dog roses, um, you all know that dog roses are either white or pink. If you had a red dog rose, it's not a dog rose, sorry. So he says, ah, oh, well, you see, they've got as deep a dye as the perfume tincture of the roses because uh, roses in Elizabethan England were paler colours than modern hybrids are. Well, for goodness sake. I mean, I just wish he'd rung me. Just ring me, John. Now, those of you who are gardeners will know that, first of all, I told you that rhodon means red, but that rosa damascena, rosa gallica, uh, and the other roses from which all roses that came from Persia are descended were always red, as their Greek names tell you. And even in Shakespeare's time, those roses were being grown in order to produce tincture. So what's he up to? Now your assignment is to work it out. <laughs> now I hope you found that interesting. I hope I haven't turned you off poetry. My students sometimes say, why do you always pull poems to pieces? And I say, oh, I would if I had it, I say, look at it. It's not to pieces. It is still whole. I cannot pull it to pieces. I cannot pull it to pieces because it's wonderful. Because every single ligament between every part of it is so taut and tense with energy. It will live long after I will live, long after this voice has ceased speaking. Other voices will make it speak and other voices will make it say something different. Especially if genetic modification has completely <laughs> buggered up roseness. Thank you very much for listening to me. I've had a lot of fun. I'd just like to point out that they have given me a, it's a Margaret Merrill, I think, uh, a creamy white hybrid tea. <laughs>